When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Gentlemen are talking, and the midnight moon is on the riverside. They're drinking up and walking, and it's time for me to slide. I live in another world where life and death are memorized, where the earth is strung with lovers' pearls, and all I see are dark eyes. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining us once again is fellow Bobcat Matt Steichen. Hi, Matt. Hey Rob, how you doing? Staying healthy I'm, out there? <laughs> I'm doing my best. Yeah, this is a this is kind of a podcaster's dream. This situation, unfortunately, where uh, we're kind of all holed up in our houses. So I'm just sitting here recording. I do have to say that the uh, previous episode that everybody heard, uh, of course, talked explicitly about what is going on with uh, the coronavirus. But there's some more stuff to cover uh, on that topic with this episode as well. Because before we get to the song, which is of course "Dark Eyes," the final track from 1985's Empire Burlesque. Uh, Matt, since you were here the last time where we talked about Ring Them Bells, you were just about to embark on seeing some Dylan shows, and now you've you've seen them. So give us your report. Uh, yeah, I w- <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I'm, I would have to say, you know, we've, we've seen shows pretty regularly for the last decade, and uh, 2006 was a great year for the shows I saw, 2013 and 14, when he went back to that more theater-style show with the two sets. I really like that tour. And then this last fall was right up there with, you know, some of my favorite stuff he's done live the last 15 years. There was just a lot of uh, variance in the sets as far as uh, songs where he toned down the band and played real soft, like on Girl the North Country and Lenny Mm -hmm. Goose, and then mixed that in with some really interesting arrangements on the rock songs and brought back, you know, I'd seen 50-some shows and I got to see three or four songs I'd never seen before. So I'd lost hope that I'd ever see some of those songs. So it was really nice to hear uh, when I paint my masterpiece, uh, mm-hmm. takes a lot to laugh. Uh, Got to serve somebody. Uh, I was really happy to see you know some of those changes that brought back some classic songs. What did your uh, What did your wife think of the the shows and your family? Because you take the whole family, right? Yeah, yeah, I took. Uh, yeah, they loved it. Uh, they did a little uh, video review for me right as soon as the lights went up, and they were very enthusiastic. Um, they looked at the set list before the show, so they kind of knew what songs were coming up, and they recognized them and. They really enjoyed seeing those songs live. We had a lot of fun. Oh, that's excellent. That's great. And I mean, un- unfortunately, as we talked about, there is some related news to Bob's touring and the current situation with the coronavirus and that some of these shows uh, that he had scheduled are, are being canceled, right? Yeah, the whole spring tour in Japan. So it'll be interesting to see if, uh, you know, he hasn't gone in 30 years. He hasn't gone six, eight months without shows. So It'll be interesting to see if maybe he goes into the studio or <laughs> if he uh, writes Chronicles 2 or if he <laughs> sits on his back porch and looks at the ocean for two months. I don't know. Us Dylan fans are always like, don't give the guy a break. You know, like he takes a bunch off from touring because of a pandemic. So we're like, hey, write a book, do an album. Yeah, Bob. Come on, you're, a, Bob. you're only 78 years old. Come on, keep working. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're uh, a merciless bunch. We do have tickets for uh, a show this summer. So we're really hoping that. 
you know, this thing doesn't take a year to blow over. We want to go see Bob and June again. So, so well, anyway, that's really cool. I'm glad you enjoyed the shows. Everyone really seemed to enjoy these these shows. I don't know anybody that came away with a sort of negative review of this last set of shows that he was doing. He seemed really, really energized. So that's uh, that is fantastic. So. So, yeah, I mean, we're here to talk about, uh, as I mentioned, Dark Eyes, the, the final song from Empire Burlesque. So, Matt, why did you want to talk about this one in particular? Well, uh, a few reasons. The, the main one is that I just think it's such a great song and it's kind of underappreciated because it's from the middle of the 80s. And it's one of the songs in the community ed class I teach about Bob Dylan that we kind of delve pretty deep into, along with Ring Them Bells, which I did in the last episode. So, yeah, it's a song that I it's on a lot of the playlists I make. I just really enjoy it. And personally, uh, as far as uh, biographically speaking, everybody's kind of got their own way they get into Bob. And I grew up, you know, just having Greatest Hits Volume 1 and then eventually went out and got Greatest Hits Volume 2 and Highway 61 or Visited. And then the next album I got was Empire Burlesque. Whoa. Um, I found it in, like, just a box of tapes underneath my brother's bed i don't think he'd ever actually listened to it but he just somehow ended up with an old copy of empire burlesque um so it ended up in the tape player in my car because it was the only tape i owned and so it's really the soundtrack of my senior year of high school which not very many millennials can say they've listened <laughs> to empire burlesque as much as i have but my little sisters that i drove to school every day my senior year of high school probably subliminally know every single song on empire burlesque by heart <laughs> oh god um <laughs> So it's uh, yeah, okay. The big difference what order you hear these songs in because by the time I was really discovering his music, um, he was already kind of towards you know what he is now. He was you know fifty some years old and he'd kind of gone down these various tangents in his career. So it wasn't like that really dramatic jolt of like oh I don't like him anymore. He plays Christian music or I don't like him anymore. He went from folk to rock. For me, he'd already kind of gone all these different directions and kind of come back with Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft. So it didn't scare me like, oh, Bob's never going to recover from this weird 80s pop phase. It was more, right. it made me more curious and excited to see like, how did all these different versions of Bob Dylan connect with each other? Like, how did this guy make Empire Burlesque and then come back and make Time Out of Mind? And I got to plug in gaps and see all the various stages and weird things he did in between there. So, Oh yeah, you're much more forgiving of something when you know it's a step along the road as opposed to exactly. you know, is this it? Is this the final? Th I I can only imagine what I've said this on other episodes, but I can only imagine what Dylan fans went through when he became born again Christian and wondered, is this it? Is this, this is what it's going to be right, until the end? And you know, and, years of this, and, yeah, forty yeah. more years of that. I don't know. So, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I, I, there's another episodes. I've I have said some unkind things about Empire Burlesque, and I, I stand by those things. I still think that there are a lot of great songs on this record, and then there are some great songs buried under pretty bad uh, arrangements and pretty bad production. Um, Arthur Baker, to a lot of Dylan fans, his name is is sort of mud. You know, like oh, the Arthur Baker guy. Now, to be all credit to Arthur Baker. You know, Bob Dylan is ultimately the producer of his own records, and there was nothing that Arthur Baker was ever going to do to a Bob Dylan record that Bob Dylan didn't approve of right. in some way. So, I mean, Arthur Baker, he gets a lot of heat, deservedly so, but also, you know, like, well, but he did, he really was the hired gun in a lot of ways, and you can't blame him too much for that. And then, ironically, this song, which is, of course, an acoustic finale 
to this one of Bob's most you know sort of loud and electronic albums uh, was the was the only song recorded directly under the supervision of Arthur Baker because this this song was uh, rec- recorded at the mixing session for the album, which is something that Bob has done in other times. I mean, he seems to um want to record an acoustic closure to an electric album about every 10 years or so. Of course, he does it with Desolation Row in 1965's Highway 61 Revisited. Then he did it again with Wedding Song on 1974's Planet Waves. And here he is about 10 years later doing it once again. So there's, there seems to be something stirring in him that he likes that after eight or nine songs of very loud, uh, you know, electronic uh, you know, electric rock, uh, boom, now he lowers the temperature down. And this, I mean, of all the albums, this is the most stark in terms of how loud Empire Burlesque is as a record. And then all of a sudden, here's this quiet little lullaby, and it really is striking uh, the change in that. And it, it, in, to many people, it's their favorite song on the record simply because it is it stands out so so markedly. Right. I think it's kind of an acknowledgement on his part that, like, okay, I'm going to take you kind of down a crazy path here, but I just want you to know, like, I'm still Bob Dylan. I can still play you a beautiful three- or four-minute acoustic song, and, you know, it'll be simple and poetic, and I'll use my quite beautiful voice when he just focuses on, uh, you know, delivering a solo acoustic song, he showed that he could still do it. And I think it kind of shows almost an example of like an alternate timeline. Like what if Bob Dylan had be, had remained a solo acoustic performer instead Mm. of, you know, turning to rock and going down all these different directions creatively, like to hear him in the middle of the eighties play a solo acoustic song is really kind of startling. Like, Oh, that's, that's what Bob Dylan, you know, that's the traditional Bob Dylan. So I, it's cool to hear him bring him back like that at the end of the album. I think it's just a fat. I, I think the '80s overall are just a fascinating stage of his career. It's like when you when Bartolo Colon hits a home run, it's like really fascinating. It's like wow, he's not like a big slugger, he's not a good hitter. So it's really interesting to to see someone like that succeed. So it's like Bob didn't really have his fastball anymore here, but he like found a way <laughs> to put this across anyway, even though uh, you know he wasn't able to do it in a traditional way he he had to kind of battle like he said uh that i had to find a way to do things consciously the way i used to do them subconsciously Mm -hmm. it's really interesting to see that internal battle and and see how he's still able to create a song like this even while he's creating those other songs that are so different yeah i mean the, the as i mentioned the melody is is sounds to me a lot like a lullaby it has that kind of sway to it which makes it very kind of reassuring and very sweet. But then, of course, the lyrics are, uh, as befits the title, pretty dark. I mean, he continues on. He says, a cock is crowing far away and another soldier's deep in prayer. Some mother's child has gone astray. She can't find him anywhere. But I can hear another drum beating for the dead that rise, whom nature's beast fears as they come. And all I see are dark eyes. They tell me to be discreet for all intended purposes. They tell me revenge is sweet. And from where they stand, I'm sure it is. But I feel nothing for their game where beauty goes unrecognized. All I feel is heat and flame, and all I see are dark eyes. So before we get to the final verse, like, Matt, like, in your mind, like, what is this song about? Well, that's one thing. I, one thing that I think is really interesting about this song is that it sort of returns to themes that Bob really tackled a lot in his early work. And it's kind of pitting the world of elitism and vengefulness and corruption Versus himself, the narrator, who symbolizes nobility and righteousness and sensitivity. And then it shows kind of how those two different groups, uh, how 
thinking about death affects their worldview. Does that make sense? Like when he sings the gentlemen are talking and the midnight moon is on the riverside, usually when Bob talks about people in suits and ties and gentlemen, he's kind of using that to symbolize the society's elite. And mm-hmm. he's talking about how they're drinking up and walking and it is time for me to slide. And if you listen to interviews from the 80s, that was kind of the time when Bob was kind of like living his Hollywood life. He was going to lots of parties. Uh, he was in We Are the World and he was presenting at the Grammys with Stevie Wonder and he was getting mistaken for a landscaper at Elton John's house. Kind of, kind of, and, you know, wearing that Miami Vice jacket and kind of like canoodling with celebrities. But if you talk to, if you, if you, see the interviews from that time, he usually tells people, like, I'm not really comfortable around groups of people. Like, he was still kind of awkward and antisocial. And he talks about, like, when I'm at these parties, my mo- the, I usually am not comfortable and I try to leave. And so when he sings, they're drinking up and walking, it is time for me to slide. Like, it's time for me to, like, cut out the back door because this, this gentleman scene where everybody's standing around drinking is not my thing. And he says, I live in another world where life and death are memorized. Like, in their world, they don't, they've got other priorities and they're not thinking about life and death. But in his world, life and death are memorized and he can't help but think about, like, the struggle of living and all the pain that comes with living. And, and death is uh, alluded to throughout the song. And I, that's why I feel like he's speaking from the point of view of someone who is more sensitive and appreciate, appreciative. It's kind of like the toxic masculinity versus the sensitivity you know, they tell me be discreet. They, they tell me revenge is sweet. From where they stand, I'm sure it is, but I don't feel anything for that game where beauty goes unrecognized. Like, he's taking the side of, like, sensitivity and, and emotion and, you know, recognizing pain and, and the difficulty of life. And these people that he's dealing with don't really understand that. It's funny you mentioned the, 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 the line about where he slides away and the goes out the back door kind of thing. And it reminds me of a quote I heard. From And this interview I have mentioned in, in probably half the episodes of Pod Dylan at this point because I love it so much from uh, the On the Tracks magazine with Jim Dickinson who worked on Bob – worked work with Bob on Time Out of Mind. And he talks about that in the recording studio where they were uh, where they were recording that record, generally the back door of the studio is locked. Uh, but if Bob wants it unlocked, it's unlocked. Uh, because that's the door he uses to to enter out the back, and the, 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 when soon as you said that, it made me think of that. That it's like that's how Bob does his sort of subtle getaway. You would think everybody's looking at him, but you could sort of p- picture him at a party, looking uncomfortable. We've all seen that video of Bob Dylan at We Are the World, yeah, looking exactly. looking desperately uncomfortable, even though he's around a lot of his friends. He just looks really awkward and doesn't look like he wants to be there. And so, you know, he's the guy that can slip out the the back door. Um, lyrically, there's a lot of I, again, it's another thing I've mentioned in in other episodes, but like a lot of Bob Dylan songs feature old timey language where you're not exactly sure what time period we're talking about here, and I feel like there isn't a whole lot of that on Empire Burlesque as a record. But then there's a lot of it here. Uh, the cock is crowing, which you know to me feels like a farm type thing, or at least at the very be- least out in the the country. And when he's talking about, I can hear another drum beating for the dead that rise. I mean, I, I think of a, a drum beating. I feel like I, I, that's like the Civil War to me. You know, that's like cross the Green Mountain kind of stuff. I, I get that's the, the 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 mood I get from it. And then when he talks about you know the 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 men for uh, they tell me to be discreet for intended purposes, revenge is sweet, but I feel nothing for their game. He always you you talk about how he you know mentions men in suits and things like that, and certainly trying to convey something. He's he does often talk about people and their games. 
uh, as a way to distance himself from sort of their preoccupations, which he's not interested in. And it reminds me a bit of all along the Watchtower in some ways, you know, where the, the, the people said businessmen drink my wine and plowmen dig my earth. None of them along the line of what any of it is worth. It's all these these sort of officious people that are doing these things, and he's not interested in any of this. Oh, yeah. He's um, used that exact phrase in several interviews where, uh, you know, he says he talks about people that want to use him for uh, their causes and stuff and people that want to have him be a leader for certain things. And he says, that's not for me. I don't play that game. Like, he used that's his exact language he uses. So it's not surprising that that would show up uh, in a song lyric that he wrote. Um, but yeah, the, there's so many allusions to death in this song. He says, where life and death are memorized, uh, a soldier's deep in prayer, a mother's child has gone astray, the drums beating for the dead that rise, all I feel is heat and flame, time is short and the days are sweet. Yeah, it's it's said it's a, for for what a such a lilting melody. Uh, it really is a dark song, and it ends up with, oh, the French girl, she's in paradise, and a drunken man is at the wheel. Hunger pays a heavy price to the falling gods of speed and steel. Oh, time is short and the days are sweet, and passion rules the arrow that flies. A million faces at my feet, but all I see are dark eyes. Now, the first two lines there, where the French girl, she's in paradise, and a drunken man is at the wheel. Hunger pays a heavy price to the fallen gods of speed and steel. There, These two lines may not have a connection to each other. I can't help but hear one, because I hear a drunken man is at the wheel... And then when you think about the the paying a heavy price to the gods of speed and steel, I mean, that sounds like a car crash to me. So I always thought about the the first two characters in that first line, that the French girl uh, kind of symbolizes innocence, and she's in paradise because she's innocent, whereas the drunken man is at the wheel, so he's not living a virtuous life. He's a drunk man driving, and now he's going to pay a heavy price to the falling gods of speed and steel. Yeah, as I said, those two things. Are, I I hear fault, and and just the the beautiful language uh, talk to talk about talking about something really horrible. The falling gods of speed and steel. I mean, that is just such a marvelous way to describe a horrible event. Uh, you know, I mean, it just it sounds so beautiful in a way, and yet it's awful. Uh, and then at the end, when he gets to a million faces at my feet, all I see are dark eyes. I have only ever heard in my mind one meaning to that, which is. You know, that's Bob talking about himself on stage. He's looking at a million faces at my feet, but all I see are dark eyes. And I always felt like this song seemed to suggest to me that at the time, maybe he wasn't really feeling it anymore as a live performer. He was still being a live performer. But I mean, if you're saying that you're seeing a million faces at your feet and all you see are dark eyes, that suggests that you're not getting much from your crowd. You're not feeling much from them. You're not getting much back from them. Uh, And it just seems like a very dark gloomy image to end the record with but that may have been where what bob was feeling at that moment oh yeah that's absolutely what i've always taken from it i mean bob and bob dylan in the 80s like that's kind of the time where he was having trouble connecting with his audience and connecting with his own material so i mean eyes are the window to the soul so if you look out Hmm. a million people at your at your feet and all you see are dark eyes it's like you're not connecting with them and you're feeling disengaged and kind of disillusioned with this process of trying to connect with them emotionally or entertain them and yeah he he looks out and he, all he sees are dark eyes it's kind of sad yeah it is and the record that way is just like whoa geez and i mean speaking of uh, audiences this song has only been played live eight times 
he played it once December 25th, 1986 in Sydney, Australia. Now, I have not heard that version. Supposedly, it was pretty disastrous. Like, it just I, I didn't guess. go well. Yes, I have heard it. It does. Oh, you have? It okay. doesn't really even count, Rob. Uh, he, he plays the opening melody three times, and then he says, ah, I can play it, but I can't sing it. I can't sing that tone. And then the audience is like, oh, I'll play Dark Eyes. And he says, ah, I can play it, but I can't sing it. And then he doesn't play it. Oh, wow. Well, that's all. Jeez. That's all. Okay. Well, no. there, there, and there, it, there it remained for nine more years until he started playing it in December of 1995. Now, of course, that was when he was being uh, supported uh, by Patti Smith, who was his opening act. And Patti Smith had recorded a cover of Dark Eyes. So that became sort of a thing where they would then do a duet. And I was actually lucky enough to see that live. I went to – me and my pal Dan Eaker saw Bob with Patti Smith at the Electric Factory on December fifteenth, 1995. And they did a very nice duet of the song. And it is – that was the uh, third uh, – next to – not the penultimate, but the pre-penultimate, if that's a word, uh, version of it live. And then he did it last on December seventeenth, 1995. And that was it. It's never been done again, so it's certainly not a song that he decides to whip out in concert very much. And apparently, uh, he had asked Patti Smith, like, I, I want you to come out and play a song with me. You pick what song you want to play. And that's what Patti Smith chose. What an offer. Yeah, yeah, of course. My gosh. And and I just love, that's another thing, a reason I picked this song, because I really feel like that's the sweet spot. If you If he plays a song, like, between once and 20 times... I'm so fascinated by like, okay, he bothered to remember the lyrics to this song. It must have been a special occasion or like what caused him to play Million Dollar Bash that one night in London? <laughs> what caused him to play A Satisfied Mind or Romance in Durango? Um, so, yeah, it's really cool that this song came back just because of that yeah, tour with Patti Smith. Yeah, it said it was really very beautiful. You could see that they clearly enjoyed singing together uh and he said it's, it's a shame as you, as you mentioned you're right if he does something between once and like you said like 20 times that's just enough that he made the effort to do it live and then very very uh specifically buried it again and you always have to wonder well what's okay there we go and of course he really doesn't play anything much from empire burlesque uh at all i mean i don't i don't even remember the last time i've been i made dark eyes might have been the that was good lord that was 25 years ago that may be the last time i ever heard an empire burlesque song live it's it's certainly not a record he returns to very much yeah. i got to see seeing the real you at last a couple times in 2000 oh okay okay as, oh as yeah, a, you know what he may have done that one yeah. as a lover of 80s bob i got one show where he opened with seen the real you at last and then played the ring them bells we talked about last time so <laughs> i was a very happy kid that day um has and a lot of the times i'll just say alexa play 80s bob dylan songs because then you don't get the greatest hits that she plays over and over again you get to hear some <laughs> deep cuts that way <laughs> trust yourself or something like yeah, that so. exactly very cool. Like I said, yeah, it's a great, it's a really great little song, and just the fact that it, the way it ends, uh, the, this this record. I think again, Clinton Hale in in, in one of his books refers to uh, this song as like a drink of cool water. Uh, after hearing all that synth and all those drums and all that whomping, you know, stuff, and then all of a sudden it just gets quiet down. So it's really quite an effective finale. Uh, to a you know to a record that has a lot of good things to say about it, not some some not good things to 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 say about it. But I mean, it, this song is certainly uh, really one of the one of the better ones from his '80s output, especially his mid '80s output. So yeah, it's a uh, it's Dark Eyes. It's really and and it's sort of funny in that this was put on the Dylan 2007 sort of greatest hits. It wasn't a box set, but it was a multi disc collection. 
and uh, that set was sort of a you know ultimate greatest hits collection. But of course, Dark Eyes was never a hit, so that makes me think that that was maybe something Bob suggested that there's something that he really likes because nobody would say that that song was a hit single. It was never even a single, but by the fact that it made it on there, somebody loves it. Warren Zevon uh, covered it also, so Warren Zevon loved it. He preceded it uh, at his concerts before he died by saying, uh, "This this song is by the person that invented the job that I do, or something." <laughs> oh, that's they, uh, Dark eyes. Oh, I, I've never heard that. I have to listen to. It. I love Warren Zevon. That's fantastic. So, well, very cool. So, so that is Dark Eyes from Empire Bliss. But before we sign off, when you were here last time, Matt, you had told some amazing stories about. Very close interactions with Bob, which I was just so envious of. And you told me that there was some other things you wanted to mention with the next time you came back on the show. So here's your chance. What else did you want to uh, talk about before we sign off? Yeah, so I told you uh, it's been kind of a fascination of the last 20 years of my life, uh, this uh, life on the road, every chance I get following Bob Dylan around and, and kind of living the tour life and meeting all sorts of really fascinating people. Uh, last time I talked about my wife, who I met at a Dylan show, and Kate and Caroline, who met Bob and started the fan club. And uh, Leroy Hoykala, Bob's drummer from the Golden Chords in high school. Um, <laughs> so last fall, I went uh, to Louis Kemp's book tour, and I got to meet Louis Kemp. We were actually in Duluth with Louis Kemp 60 years after. We were at the Armory, actually, with Louis 60 years after Bob was at the Armory with Louis. So that was wow. cool. uh, That was back in last fall. Here in Minnesota, we've gotten to know... Uh, Gene LaFont, who uh, traveled on the Rolling Thunder tour and is still a musician here in the Twin Cities. Gene was a friend of ours, and he still plays locally. Uh, he went on the Rolling Thunder tour with Larry Keegan, Bob's high school friend, as a friend of uh, a friend of Gino. So Gino got to drive his van around with the Rolling Thunder tour, and then uh, he got to open for Bob along with Larry when Bob played the Orpheum here in Minneapolis in like 1990 or so. And then I got to meet the Blood on the Tracks band last year, two years ago. Um, they got together for a reunion just to uh, be interviewed on a local TV show hosted by Paul Metza. And so it was just the Blood on the Tracks band and about five others of us in attendance watching the Blood on the Tracks band talk for about three hours. Wow. The making of Blood on the Tracks and then uh, jamming to Tangled Up in Blue again. All the survive, all the members are still around. Two of them Skyped in, but the rest were on hand. So I got to see them and meet them. So that was awesome. Uh, I've gotten to know Bill Pagel over the years. Uh, he owns Bob's Houses in Duluth and Hibbing. Um, we were uh, at Dylan Days a couple years ago talking to Bill. We had all of our kids running around this museum where Bill had all of his Bob memorabilia sitting out on display because he's one of the biggest Dylan memorabilia collectors in the world, probably the biggest. But I'm standing next to Bill talking, and all of a sudden I see that my five-year-old has snuck behind the exhibit, and he's got his fingertips on the original handwritten copy of chimes of freedom and oh, that geez. was one of the most mortifying moments of my life to see <laughs> my son almost destroy chimes of freedom as i was standing there with bill pagel <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> you had to be very quick son now that's you can't do that yeah <laughs> uh bill pagel's dedicated his life to preserving these things and my yeah. he's gonna get his grubby chocolate fingertips all over chimes of freedom <laughs> That's great. Um, another time, we met Bill Walton three times in two days in, in Arizona. Uh, we saw him at a show up front one night in Phoenix. And then the next day, we were hiking on a mountain in Tucson. And 100 feet ahead of us on the trail, walking the other direction, is this giant man. And me and my brother and my wife looked at each other and said, is that Bill Walton? 
And sure enough, Bill walked up to us and we talked to him about the show. We said, Bill, we saw you at the show last night. What'd you think? And Bill said, more dancing. We need to do more dancing. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was it. It was like, we didn't have a cell phone to like take a selfie or anything. So it was like, oh, that was weird. We just ran to Bill Walton. And then we went to the show the next night and we saw Bill again. And so I started walking towards him just to like say hi or whatever. And thinking like, oh, he might not even remember me. He talks to 50 people a day and he's recognized everywhere he goes. And like, I'm 20 feet away. Me and my wife are walking towards him. And before I can say anything, he says, I saw you today. And uh, so we walk up to Bill Walton and he talked to us for like 10 minutes and introduced us to his wife, who was about four feet tall and (laughs) signed our tickets and stuff. So we got to meet Bill Walton one time. That was cool. In 2004, we got to know uh, Tommy, Bob's guitar tech. Wow. So we talked to him a lot before the shows. And then after a show one time, we went up toward the stage and I said, Tommy, can I have Bob's cup? So he got me Bob's cup and handed it to me and it still had the drink in it. So I downed it. I, I was like instinctively threw it down. And uh, so, yeah, I shared a drink with Bob, technically speaking, that night. Uh, <laughs> it was it was orange drink, not orange juice, but like the flavor orange drink. Uh, and I did have that cup up until a couple years ago, and then I finally like lost it or something. You could have cloned Bob Dylan if you yeah. had the technology. I should have swabbed it, swabbed it, and, <laughs> and maybe someday technology will catch up. Maybe so. Um, maybe so. Well, that, that's that's those are amazing. Good lord! You <laughs> thought you I thought you had one or two stories. You met you've been meeting tons of people. I got to meet John Bushy. I don't know if you know who John Bushy was. Um, he probably was one of the biggest Bob Dylan fans in the world, but he had a show on KUMD in Duluth radio. He was a teacher in Duluth and one of the foremost collectors of Bob Dylan bootlegs. He got special permission from Bob's people to play bootlegs on the air. So played every night for every, every Sunday night for 25 years, he played Bob Dylan bootlegs in Duluth, but John passed away from, he had cancer for a long time. He passed away a couple of years ago and I got to meet him a couple of times before that. Um, but this is kind of a little known Bob story. Um, before John passed, Bob actually called John Bushy and ta- and talked to him on the phone and said, you know, thanks for sharing my music with the world. I really appreciate what you've done and all that. Whoa. It's kind of a sweet thing, you know, kind of a peek behind the curtain that, that Bob can be a you know, pretty good guy. Um, so that's kind of a sweet thing. And yeah. uh, we got to meet a bootlegger who I will not name. But you would recognize his name. He was in town in Minneapolis for shows in 2014 or so. And he met us for drinks at the bar before the show. And so we got to talking, like, how do you do it? Because he, he records shows all over the world. And uh, he opened up his jacket, and the inside of it was lined with wires. <laughs> and then he took the two buttons on the corners of his collar, and they were both microphones. Oh my Both goodness! Fuzzy microphones that he had on the tips of his collars. So I, I won't say his name, but he's a guy we've gotten to know over the years as well. Um, so that was pretty cool too. I, That's I, I love the secret squirrel. Uh, spy kind of uh, idea yeah. behind that. That's so that, amazing. That's part of uh, what I've really liked about following Bob Dylan all over the country for the last couple of decades. Is we have what uh, my wife and I have what we call like our Bob Dylan world. And people will ask us, like, oh, is that, like, a real friend or is that, like, a Bob Dylan person? (laughs) We have all these people that we know, but we only know them within the context of the couple days a year where we hang out with them at Bob Dylan shows. Um, But it's been a really uh, 
a really fun hobby to maintain for this long. And you oh, yeah. meet a lot oh. of interesting people and see a lot of interesting places. Many, many years ago, I was down in New Orleans uh, at a comic book convention, and it was a bunch of us from, from our art school and a couple other people. And then we happened to pick up with a couple other people who we didn't – I didn't know. Some, some of my friends knew, but I didn't know any of them. And one of the guys uh, that, that I had just met like an hour earlier was sitting a couple seats from me away at a dinner table. And out of nowhere, he just quotes Bob Dylan. And all of a sudden, everybody else turned to look at me, and they were like, oh, God, he's one of you. And they were like, yeah. oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. And then him and I were just talking for the rest of the trip because we were like, <gasps> you know, so it really is like a weird little cult. Yeah, like once you find out somebody's like all in in that subject yeah. area, yep. I've had that happen several times at parties and whatnot. Like, hey, you should meet my friend. He's big into Bob Dylan, too. And then it's like all of a sudden we only talk to each other the rest of the night. <laughs> it's, it really is pretty amazing. Well, those, those are amazing experiences. I, I would, I don't get to travel a whole lot, and I certainly don't get to like follow Bob around. I, I did that. The closest I ever did that was one time, and I, I, I saw him like three times in a week, and one and one was driving up to Boston to go see him and stuff. But I've never had those kinds of experiences. So that's that's just amazing. That sounds very rewarding because not only do you love the music, but then you're getting to to meet all kinds of people. So that that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, it's. Uh... It's been a very rewarding hobby, and I'm, I'm lucky to have a wife that supports it. I don't know if, oh, yeah. if all that would happen if she wasn't a fellow bobhead. So, yeah, that that would get that would get a little complicated. So, <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Well, again, Matt, thank you so much for stopping by again. Why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Uh, sure, I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore Stike M A T T underscore S T I K E, and. Uh, there won't be any never-ending tour updates this spring, but hopefully this summer things will be back on track, fingers crossed. No pun intended. Yeah. Uh, so, well, awesome. Thank you very much. And, of course, if we're always talking uh, Bob Dylan on Twitter at pod underscore Dylan. You can find back episodes of the show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on Spotify. And if you want to support the network, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward and another pledger who will remain masked and anonymous for their support of Pod Dylan. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Oh, the French girl sees in paradise And a drunken man is at the wheel Hunger pays a heavy price to the falling gods of speed and steel Oh, time is short and the days are sweet And passion rules the arrow that flies A million faces at my feet But all I